This is a crawdad song. Wake up, honey, you slept too late. Bing, boo. Wake up, honey, you slept too late. Crawdad man done past your gate. Welcome to Crawdads and Taters, Red State Rebels. We are writers, activists, and leftists who come from two of the reddest states in the country, Oklahoma and Idaho. When we say red, we may be referring to the indigenous, socialist, and labor histories of these states, or the right-wing fanaticism that they're known for today. As rebels, we use a leftist lens to analyze current events, political issues, and revolutionary movements that support our collective survival. So so my crawl, that's three, four, dime. Your crawl, that's not as fat as mine. In this first episode, we wanted to take a few minutes to introduce ourselves. I'm Aaron, a.k.a. Crawdads, from the great state of Oklahoma. And I'm Burian, a.k.a. Taters. I'm clearly from Idaho. <laughs> So let's dive right in, Brian. Why don't you tell me what it was like to grow up in Idaho? Right. So Idaho was an interesting experience. Um, I grew up in a small town of around 450 people. That was very right-wing in nature. Um, I remember during like third or fourth grade when Clinton was president, one of the first jokes I actually heard was a political joke. Um, I'm going to see if I can do this correctly here. So President Clinton comes up to this kid who has some new puppies. And he asked him, he's like, are they Republicans or Democrats? And the kid's like, oh, they're Democrats. So Clinton goes to get Hillary or someone else to come see and is like, look at these puppies. These are Democratic puppies. And then the kid's like, nope, they're Republicans now. Their eyes are open. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Yeah, I, I don't think I really understood it at the time. Wow. But that kind of shows you know, a little bit of what Idaho was like. Yeah. Um, I also remember there was someone who was running for either state or national senate who brought a spotted owl, which is a rare endangered species. Mm -hmm. and it was like a statue of it, very stuffed. I don't know, probably not a real one, but it had an arrow through its head. Oh my God. And that was part of her campaign was kill the spotted owl, essentially. <gasps> wow. Bunch of brutes and savages in your state. Yeah, yes. <laughs> And that, I think she probably won her campaign. I don't remember. But... Oh, my God. This was a political candidate who came to your class? She came to, like, our county fair, I believe. Oh, okay. It was like a display at the county fair where she had this owl with the arrow through its head. Oh, my God. And it was a clearly anti-green. You know, I am so sorry. Just... Log everything, kill the owl. Wow. Yeah, that pretty much uh, sets the tone for your political upbringing, doesn't it? Yeah, that's pretty much what Idaho is like. Wow. That's incredible. 
So um, you were there through high school, right? And into college. Did you, you did your college from Idaho as well? Uh, yes. Yeah. So I actually, I, I did drop out of high school okay. after my freshman year because we moved then. Okay. And I ended up doing um, internet school for college. Okay. Just because I, I couldn't handle the, another school. It, you know, it was not for me. Yeah. Okay. And you got a degree, a bachelor's in military history. And I'm curious why you decided to pursue that field. Um, so that was just something I was interested in. I did a lot of reading um, and I found the study of war to be fascinating. Would you ha would you call say that you were coming at that degree from a leftist angle at that time or um to a certain extent, not like hugely leftist angle, but I mean I was not pro war, yeah, you know, I was I was just interested in the history of it. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And how would you say that degree shapes your understanding of, of U.S. politics today? So, yeah, the history of the United States is essentially a history of war. Um, that's been made clear. You know, I was born in war. There was genocide of the Native peoples was brought through war. Uh, essentially, every phase of United States history has been military in nature. And we're seeing that continuing today with Joe Biden just recently bombed Syria. And that's, you know, U.S. politics seems to be essentially in the pocket of the military industrial complex. We live in a war economy. Yeah, it's all about bombing brown people. <laughs> <laughs> What a great, what a great legacy we leave. Um, well, let's move on to something a little bit more recent. Tell me about your experience working for the Bernie campaign as not only a super volunteer, but you were a canvasser, a text sweeper, and ultimately a national delegate. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. Maybe you could summarize just uh, the highlights or maybe what, what, uh, Maybe what what were your big takeaways from that experience? I mean, we all know what happened to the Bernie campaign, both in 2016 and 2020. Um, but certainly you were a lot closer to it than most people. Yeah, so I mean, it was it was a good experience getting out and talking to people through both, you know, canvassing, texting, phone banking. We had a lot of good conversations. Um, as a text sweeper, actually was on the back end, so I was going over conversations that other texters had. So I got to see a lot of what was going on with the campaign, um, and I mean that was that was a good experience. A lot of people do actually you know, agree with Bernie's policies. It was very clear Bernie was a very popular candidate, but then you know the whole collapse of the campaign. All of that was a really difficult time. I was running for delegate at the time, so that was very, very hard. Um, I believe you know Bernie had dropped out right as I was in my delegate election, so people were asking, like, you know, Bernie's not in the campaign anymore. Why are you running for delegate? And wow. it was like, still, you know, I was like, I still want to represent him at the convention and all that. And then COVID hit. And yeah, COVID was hitting at the same time. 
Um, there was, this was same time, you know, Tom Perez and Joe Biden were sending people out to vote in the middle of pandemic while Bernie had suspended his get out the vote operations. Mm-hmm. Um, we were doing solidarity calls, checking in to make sure people were all right during the pandemic. Uh, there was nothing easy about any of that. And you didn't even know if there was going to be a convention and what ended up happening. So for a while there, we thought we, you know, thought we might have to go to the convention in spite of COVID. And then we thought it might be a virtual slash mix with them sending some people. And they ended up basically just canceling the convention and turning it into a made for TV show. They ignored the rules. They didn't announce the vote totals. They ended up having basically a infomercial for the military industrial complex and for Joe Biden. <laughs> yes, I painfully remember that. Oh my God, that was so bad. Um, it was it was awful. It was awful. Yeah. And, and throughout, Bernie delegates were not treated well yeah. through the entire time. Yeah, which I'm sure was uh, kind of a throwback to 2016 in terms of how Bernie delegates were treated. Yeah, I guess in a way we were fortunate that we weren't at the convention, so we didn't have to deal with it in person. It was just over Zoom and email and et cetera. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was, I'm sure, a very disillusioning and um, disappointing experience in a lot of ways. What would you say about how that whole experience as a delegate shaped your views around electoral politics? politics in general in the United States and specifically the Democratic Party? So that was kind of the last straw for me with the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Um, After the convention, I dropped my registration as a Democrat and re-registered as independent, which is nice to not be associated with that corrupt party anymore. Um, After looking at the Democratic party platform and the way they treated the Bernie delegates and the way they just kind of railroaded everything they wanted into it and had no respect for Medicare for all, uh, no respect for the process. They just said, we're just going to do everything we want is that Biden wants is what we're going to do. We have no voice for the Bernie people. Um, so yeah, as a whole, I've you know moved even further left after that experience with the inside you know, the belly of the beast. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason for this podcast, so that we can talk about some of the issues that routinely get omitted and suppressed uh, by the corporate politics that dominate our landscape. Exactly. I think we need more voices on the left. So, crawdads. Oh, my God. Erin, <laughs> uh, can you kind of describe to me what it was like growing up in Oklahoma? Well, actually, there are a lot of similarities to your description of Idaho. Um, but I guess I'd say, you know, it was a very, con- very conservative place. But I also had the um, fortune of growing up in a university town. So there was a little bit more diversity 
not only of people, but of political thought in this town. Um, so it wasn't quite the sort of rural conservative experience it might have been had I grown up in any other part of Oklahoma. But growing up in Norman, I had just a little bit of a little bit of an academic bubble around me. So that was kind of nice. Um, so you were in the liberal heart of Oklahoma, you'd say? <laughs> I don't know if Oklahoma actually has a liberal heart. I think my county is actually one of the only counties to go blue during national elections, but sometimes it still doesn't. So it's like every single county goes red and sometimes Cleveland County goes blue or sometimes, yeah, I think it's, yeah, but it's, it's a toss up, you know, it's basically, it's a tiny, tiny blue island surrounded by a sea of red. And, um, I grew up in a, in, in a single parent family. It was my mom that raised me and my sister and, uh, we grew up very working class. Um, my parents divorced when I was really young and I had, my mom just had a, uh, she had a university job actually, which was good. But at that time, uh, I think her salary was 12000 a year for most of my childhood. And she was raising two kids on that. So um, let's just say we, we learned how to save. We learned how to be thrifty. We learned how to eat food out of the garden. We learned how to dumpster dive. We learned how to do, you know, a lot of things to make to stretch a penny, to make a penny go a long way. Wow. So yeah, that sounds very working class. Yep. Do you want to tell me more about kind of where you went after Oklahoma? Sure. Um, by the time I was in high school, I was desperate to get out of Oklahoma. I really was suffocating politically. Um, even though I was still in kind of this liberal town, I just felt like my options were so limited there. You know, I was in one of those high schools where most of the girls were, well, not most, but a lot of the girls were getting pregnant and married in <laughs> high school. <laughs> and that was not my idea of a future. And so I was looking to escape. Um, and I ended up going to the University of Oregon and um, studying sociology uh, at a, in a Marxist program, actually. <laughs> so I went from one kind of red in Oklahoma to a very different kind of red in Oregon. <laughs> so that's a huge, huge shift. Yeah, it was a huge cultural shift, too, because Eugene, Oregon is a total hippie town. Um, and I went from, you know, this really conservative, I mean, even my hometown of Norman was relatively conservative. So, you know, just this really conservative kind of Southern U.S. town where gender roles were really uh, defined and traditional to this, you know, hippie oasis where like nobody shaved their legs and everybody smoked pot. <laughs> like, you know, it was just this total total radical shift in culture as well as being immersed in a Marxist political program. It was, it was kind of like going to another planet, honestly. That sounds like it. Yeah. It's a very big difference there. Yeah. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit about how getting a, a sociology degree from a Marxist school frames your current political views? Wow. Yeah, it's pretty formative. Um, so 
when I left Oklahoma in high school, I was already kind of headed in a social justice direction. My mom uh, had been a feminist since I was a young age, which was kind of an anomaly in Oklahoma, but she definitely influenced me. Um, and she was involved with some civil rights uh, activists as well when I was very young. So I kind of had this critical race and gender theory, I would say, going into the program when in college. But when I got to college, it was, um, I mean, studying Marx is a, is a completely different experience. And I would say that what it did first and foremost is um, it gave me class consciousness. Um, I'd say my early years in sociology really taught me to understand my own history and upbringing from a class perspective, whereas that had never been introduced to me before. So it um, that was a new framework for me, and it, it has framed and, and sort of shaped everything since then. And I'd also say that, you know, it gave me a really um, sharp critique of capitalism that I also didn't have. And it helped me realize that my whole universe and everything that I had lived in up until then had been shaped by capitalism and that, you know, capitalism is the air we breathe and capitalism is what defines our politics and to a large degree, our society and our social identities. And, um, and it kind of just helped me look at the whole world through an anti-capitalist lens. Um, which was very formative and, and continues with me today. Yeah, that sounds like it must have been a really eye-opening experience. Yeah, and in a way, it was kind of an alienating experience because once I developed that consciousness, I felt like a fish out of water. Like everything around me and everyone around me was still playing by the old rules and not conscious of, of this... Um, exploitative sort of disastrous system that we were all immersed in. And I felt like I had this, you know, different view on it now, but nobody understood why that was such a toxic, such an, such an unworkable system. And so, you know, now I'd say 20 years later, there is some consciousness around that and it's okay to um, be a person in society who is, you know, who has an open critique of capitalism and who speaks openly about that. But in the mid 90s, when I got this degree, I would say that it's not the case. And I felt very alone and very isolated for a couple of decades um, in public spaces. And anytime I was in political conversation, because whether we were talking about environmental issues or immigration issues or race issues, I always had a capitalist a vision and understanding of why things were working the way they were working. And that was just a lens that was unfamiliar to most people. So would you say that now we've moved, like there's better understanding of anti-capitalism? That's so. a great question. Um, I'd say we're at the beginning of a critical awareness I mean, there are definitely socialists and communists in our society who know and who study theory and who know what capitalism is and, and why, uh, basically why it's unworkable, um, why it's leading to human extinction, why it's destroying the planet, um, you know, why it's corrupting our political systems, et cetera. 
But um, I, I still think that there's a lot of understanding and education that needs to happen for for the majority of people to get that and to get on board with that. I, I agree with that. That's not a very cheery thing. No. But that's the world that we're living in. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said it's been about 20 years since you went to school. Uh-huh. Can For my you, undergraduate, yeah. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit more about some political experiences that you've had since then that have kind of helped form your current political? Yeah. One was in the late 90s, I moved to San Diego to um, specifically to work on the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, I had a partner at the time who had graduated from the same sociology sociology program I had, and we were both really interested in labor exploitation um, that was occurring on the Mexico side of the U.S.-Mexico border under NAFTA, uh, because we had, you know, been learning about capitalist globalization and how um, basically NAFTA and the whole free trade agreement at that time was making it so that. Um, Mexican workers, their their labor was becoming devalued um, under that program, and they had to basically leave their farms and leave their traditional ways of life and head north towards the border because they had basically their farms had become unviable because uh, because of NAFTA because NAFTA encouraged um, U.S like corn producers to flood Mexican markets with a bunch of cheap corn. And so it really devalued the the corn in Mexico and then Mexican farmers couldn't make a living anymore. So that created basically a migrant workforce where once their economy was destroyed, they had to go north to seek labor, to seek employment. And they found employment in these sweatshops that were just, that were placed just on the Mexico side of the U.S.-Mexico border where they would go work for pennies an hour um, and under horrible working conditions. And um, so I was there organizing and learning from a group of Mexican women who were uh, Marxists, actually, trying to organize inside their factories. And they you know, were talking about, you know, rapes and murders and kidnappings that happened to their workers on a regular basis. They described horrid working conditions of, um, you know, employers not letting them go to the bathroom, firing them if they were pregnant, um, just basically just the worst, like if you can like think about like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, but just like imagine that on steroids and also in a very patriarchal sexist culture that like just wanted to repress and control women completely. And, and meanwhile, women were getting murdered, you know, on their way to and from work. And they had to work seven days a week to try to, you know, make a a bare living for their families and they weren't even doing it. So it was just these desperate, dire conditions. And that's why we went there was to study that because we knew that was going on, but we wanted to actually interview workers and see what they were doing and just learn and, soak up as much as we could. So that was our main purpose for going there. And I worked for um, some nonprofit organizations while I was there, but um, but I spent a majority of time in Tijuana working with women in Mexico. 
Um, so that was, I'd say that was very formative. <laughs> and it also was a really intimate look into disaster capitalism, you know, and what happens when all regulations are gone, like unfettered capitalism, like raw capitalism, when there's no worker protections. And that that is what, you know, capitalism wants to do to continue to make profits is to reduce labor protections, to reduce environmental protections. Um, I'll also mention about that, that there were terrible environmental conditions in Tijuana as well, because these factories were violating Mexican law and just dumping their waste into basically just onto the ground behind the, um, the factories, the maquiladoras. And this, all this toxic sludge from a lot of different factories, I mean, all kinds of things were manufactured. I should say there were, you know, electrical parts, there were pencils, there were all kinds of little trinkets, but I'd say mainly electronics industries would dump their waste down these mountains and these, and, and the waste would just run into the streams that, and the arroyos and would then flow into the colonias, which were the communities that were just at the bottom of the hill. And things, I mean, these these communities were suffering from all kinds of horrible um, environmental catastrophes, you know, what we would now call environmental racism, but it was it was just unfettered capitalism just dumping, you know, into these streams and poisoning these communities. All the kids that I met had rashes on their skin. They didn't know why. And they were like washing their clothes in, in this water. And they were using this water to cook with. And um, there was this really rare um, disease that had developed in one of the communities called anencephaly, where um, children, where babies are born with the brains, their brains on the outside of their skulls. And none of this was being researched. Nobody was monitoring it. It was just like this Wild West capitalism where the Mexican colonia, the people in the colonias were absolutely paying the environmental price and the labor costs for this hyper-capitalism that was going, you know, the, these profit margins that were being created on their backs and in their communities, and that these products that they were making were going to be exported and sold into foreign markets. So they saw zero benefit from any of this industry, and yet they were literally dying from, from it. That sounds a little bit like the future that neoliberalism wants with uh, deregulation. And that's absolutely awful. It was awful. And it was formative. Um, it was formative. Um, uh, what else? I mean, I'll just maybe I'll just talk about one other since that kind of took a little while. <laughs> um, one other political, I guess, experience that was super formative was um, I, I lived in Guatemala briefly in my 20s, and I had gone down there principally to study Spanish, but um, I ended up getting really immersed in the political history of Guatemala while I was there. And that's where I really became radicalized, I would say, in terms of U.S. foreign policy, because up until that time, all of my education had focused on uh, race, class, and gender, essentially, um, and, you know, and capitalism. But I did not realize the degree to which the United States had intervened in Central America or in Latin America or in any part of the world until I got to Guatemala and I started to 
meet with people who, um, who had survived massacres um, all throughout the early 80s uh, when the U.S. was funding uh, Guatemalan death squads to basically murder tens of thousands of indigenous people, hundreds of thousands, actually. Um, and that, I mean, I can't even begin to explain how that affected me, but it was incredibly formative. I was there for several months and went back later as a, uh, as a, a witness on a, there was a witness for peace delegation, a human rights delegation that I went back on and collected testimonies and then brought them back to the United States and presented them to human rights organizations here. But, um, I mean, I could talk about it for, for hours, but I guess the most formative part of it for me was realizing how much blood the U S government has on its hands and not I mean, I knew something about the genocide of indigenous people in this country. I didn't know enough at that time, and I still don't know enough. But going to Guatemala, I realized that this kind of genocide is something that the U.S. exports and has done all over the world and uh, specifically in Central America to to a great, you know, to to a great extent. And in the in the 80s, all of this, this genocide and, you know, all of these political interventions and dirty wars were done um, in the name of fighting communism. So, again, you know, <laughs> I'm starting to I was beginning to see that when other nations become anti-capitalist in any small way, whether it's just about reclaiming their land or, you know, wanting to have sovereignty over their food production or any kind of just wanting to control their own resources, um, that's a threat to global capitalism. And the U.S. will routinely step in and make sure that that sovereignty is not realized. And that's still happening today. Yes. It seems like not a lot has actually changed since the 80s as far as U.S. foreign policy goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, what, what changes is the excuse. You know, in the, in the 80s, it was communism. And then like in the early 2000s, it was counterterrorism. Um, but basically, it's it's the same, you know, it's, it's U.S. interventionism and U.S. imperialism all over the world, just trying to control the resources and, and the people and the labor uh, of people all over the world. That's really powerful, Erin. Thanks for sharing all of that. So why are we doing this podcast now? Well, because it's cool and everyone's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. No, uh, seriously, I guess because you can never really have too many independent, non-corporate voices on the left. Um, and I also think that like this is just a really pivotal moment in U.S. history where we need to be in conversation with each other. Because I feel like we're at this turning point where uh, the stakes are so high, you know, on so many different issues, politically, environmentally, we're literally fighting for our survival. And I feel like we need to come together and just share our knowledge and share our frameworks and give each other tools to, um, to start organizing. I agree. Yeah, it's a... Uh... The time is ripe for revolution. Absolutely. 
And, you know, the two of us, unlike many people on the left, we grew up in a very conservative area, you in Oklahoma and me in Idaho. So we're very familiar with the giant political and cultural divides between the left and the right. Mm -hmm. But coming from a Marxist and socialist perspective, we can see that the main struggle in this country is a class struggle. It's a racial class struggle, but nevertheless, it is definitely a class struggle. And by using this lens to look at the world, we hope to create solidarity where the mainstream media sows division. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially given the fact that fascism is an ever-emerging force coming from the far right, uh, we think it's important to look at the ways that the last several decades of neoliberalism have created a breeding ground for fascism, frankly. Um, and begin to look at current issues through this class lens that begins to bridge the left to right political identities that the corporate media and the ruling class have created for us and used to divide us. All right, right on, Crawdads. <laughs> All right, Taters. Let's get this show on the road. Let's <laughs> <laughs> Rebels. Crawdads and Taters is a self-produced and directed production by Aaron McCarley and Burian Sundahl. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Oh, but he ain't never mind. Uh-huh.